Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a, an amazing founder. I mean, I'm a little bit biased because he is from Spain, from Madrid. So obviously everything from Spain, from Madrid is amazing to me. But uh, in this case, his journey is quite remarkable, very inspiring. He's done it multiple times. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, all of the good stuff that we like to hear. But in this case, you know, a very remarkable journey, you know, especially when you're a founder coming from a non-emerging market, going into a place like Latin America, figuring out the ropes, uh, also having, you know, clear product market fit before raising money, something that people don't really have in mind nowadays, really building a big business or a real business, you know, before you even go knocking on doors for money. And then also having clarity when hiring, as well as understanding your role too when you are the founder of a hyper-growth business and how years and things are going to be unfolding and how the hats are going to change. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Gonzalo Parejo Navajas. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alejandro. Nice being, uh, being here with you. So originally born and raised in Madrid in 79. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, as you said, now 45 years old, uh, even though I'm wearing a t-shirt and trying to look young. It was in the 70s when I was born in Madrid. I was born in a family of lawyers, most of them working for, uh, for uh, they were public servants. And I was, uh, they took me to a, to a very, I would say, uh, open-minded school, uh, learning English uh, from the beginning. My parents uh, were born and raised in the Canary Islands one and the Basque country. So they went to Madrid to find, uh, let's say, success, uh, a path in their career, in their professional careers. So they wanted us, uh, the four of us, uh, I was born and raised in a family of three boys and one girl. They, my parents wanted us uh, to have what they didn't have when they were, when they were kids. No? Now, quite the uh, worldview that you had uh, early on. I mean, for example, like you were saying, you went to a school that uh, where you were learning something else, you know, besides uh, Spanish. And then also at the age of 15, you had the opportunity of getting a scholarship to come to the U.S. So how was that experience for you of being able to get outside and see that there's a world outside of Madrid, of Spain, and, and, and coming to a place like the U.S.? Well, I, I, I was born and raised in a very nice neighborhood in, in the north of Madrid, and I always had what I wanted. I studied a lot, but I was quite spoiled uh, looking backwards, no? Um, uh, but I, I work a lot uh, to have that, uh, that scholarship. I was 15 years old when I moved to New Mexico. I received a scholarship to study in New Mexico. And I thought, okay, where, where is that on the map? I had to look, at, uh, look that up on the map. No? But the reality is it, it was a life-changing experience. I moved and lived for nine to 10 months in the U.S. without any contact with my family. We're talking about 1995, no it was email was starting to work, internet too. But reality is I was completely in another uh, world, nine hours difference. So, uh, and I moved to the U.S., which was basically a, a very, let's say, individualistic uh, atmosphere. My, my American brother was starting to prepare all 
um, applications for the university. He was starting to explain to me what his life was going to be when he became 17, 18, that he had to find his way, his life, trying to look for a place to live, start working to pay for tuition. And I was thinking, okay, that's not going to be my life when I come back um, to the to Spain. I also was playing tennis, and I was I was not a great tennis player. I was not Rafael Nadal, but I was good, and I was even offered a scholarship, well, okay, school, uh, to stay in the U.S. But I could not stay because of the conditions of my scholarship. But reality is, I saw a totally different world. Kids there when they were eighteen, they are adults. And they are treated like adults, and they need to start thinking on what they need to, uh, what they want to do, no? And uh, there in, in Madrid, my life was completely different. I was a kid. Yeah, no, and I and I can and I can totally understand your your view here because obviously in Madrid, you only leave your parents' house when you're getting married. So it's like in your thirties, you're still getting the laundry done and everything done, which is unheard of in the in the U.S., which is a different uh, way of thinking, but. In your case, you know, you ended up studying business and law. You know, you were in a family of lawyers and uh, they thought that that was going to be your path forward. I mean, you ended up even getting accepted into Clifford Chance, worked at a time, you know, where there was a lot of IPOs going on. You know, very, very tough times too, but a lot of work that you got uh, done at that point. But you ended up deciding that that was not for you. At what point did it become clear that, hey, I think I want to park the uh, legal professional career and go at it on my own? So, I think when you are 16, 17, 18, uh, you, don't have, you have no clue of what you actually want to do with your life, but you have your, your father, your mother as an example. Everybody tells you, oh, being a lawyer, an engineer, a doctor, for a, a guy that studies a lot and gets very good grades, is a great career path. And then you study law and business and, and you do very well and everybody tells you, oh, you should aim for the great law firms, and you just don't think about it. So you just apply, you do the, the exam, and you pass, and you get a, an amazing offer. I remember that by that time, it was 1997. I got an offer even before finishing the school that was 24,000 euros per year. Now it's, I mean, it's not a great salary maybe now, but it's still, it's still a very good salary, you know, for a, a junior lawyer that doesn't know anything about law. So I, I felt like uh, that I had a great opportunity, but I didn't even think if that, it, that was actually what I wanted to do. So I started working very hard, wake up very early, go to the, to the law firm, uh, work until 11.30 p.m., some days until very late at night, sometimes uh, during weekends, get, getting a lot of pressure about subjects I didn't have any clue about. Uh, I didn't really actually see the point of being so stressed. I was not prepared for that. And partially it was my fault because my life had been quite easy until then. No pressure. Uh, in my family, nobody gave me any idea of what was that because my parents were public servants. None of my friends of my uh, closest, like uh, let's say parents from my friends, could give me any view on that. I was also the third of four kids. I was in the middle. I was quite independent. So I didn't even ask for uh, advice. And uh, so I started to feel very lonely. Uh, I started to feel uh, that if I had to wait 10 to 15 years doing this to actually become a partner, that was not for me. I wanted something more that connected to the path that I wanted to build. I was always very independent. 
I could not be sitting on a chair for 12 hours looking at the same paper over and over again, no? repeating things. So after two years, I, I walked up to Jaime San Roman, who was the president of Twitter for Chance by then, very, very well-known law, uh, lawyer. And I told him, uh, Jaime, I'm, I'm quitting. Uh, and he asked me, what are you going to do? Uh, actually, I don't know yet. Uh, and he was really, really surprised. surprised. Imagine leaving Clay for Chance, a great law firm, uh, a young kid, very well educated, with no plans. I told him I was basically I was going to launch a public-private company in the middle of nowhere in Spain, Empresa Municipal. And I didn't have a contract. I didn't know if I was going to be paid. I didn't know if actually the, that, uh, that idea was actually going to work. I had to sell it to the major of Ciudad Real. No? And, uh, but I felt that that was something more connected to me. Actually, myself building, uh, building something, regardless if it was something fancy. I actually wanted to do something by myself. And where do you think that that entrepreneurial mindset or that entrepreneurial bug, where do you think that came from? In my, in my family, I think I've always been a little bit, let's say, the outlier in that respect. Uh, I've always wanted to understand things. Uh, when I was uh, young, I read a lot of books. I was thinking, uh, imagining things. Uh, I was always outside of home. I, always, I was always reading about traveling. I was always a very, let's say, um, a kid with, with a lot of uh, uncertainties too, very insecure but also with a lot of questions and wanting to do uh, um, different stuff. So when I went to the U.S., I realized that I could do all that stuff by myself. When I came back from the U.S. Uh, and finished the school, I realized that I had sort of taken two steps backwards. I was not being so mature as I expected. When I was in the law firm, I saw that my life was going to be exactly the same as the rest of the people around me. And I don't know if it's some sort of egocentric way of being, but I didn't want to be somebody else. I didn't want to be another lawyer, another partner. I just didn't want to be, let's say, the guy that actually everybody looked at and said, oh, he followed all the path in this long term and became a very successful partner. Because uh, as one, one, one uh, of my bosses told me, um, you're just another lawyer. Just, just another partner. Once you quit, there will be another guy doing exactly the same job as you are doing. And I didn't feel very enthusiastic about that, that idea in my life. So whatever happened with the Empresa Municipal, the first rodeo? So the Empresa Municipal, remember, I was 26 years old. I was going to uh, an important municipality in Castilla-La Mancha. With, uh, I was invited by uh, another lawyer, friend of my family, that told me, you can come with me and help me build this company. And once you build it, you can become uh, the CFO, COO, sort of manage the company. But there is one but. Uh, since it's an Empresa Municipal, that is, it's a private company, but publicly owned. So the municipality is the owner, but you actually handle it. Uh, so there's only one but. There will always be a political person deciding the main guidelines of the company because at the end it's controlled by the municipality. So if you actually want to run the company, you will have to become part of the political party that controls the municipality. So after three or four years, I did a very good job as the secretary to the board of directors. I was also, um, I prepared certain plans that made the company 
profitable, but also was able to deliver public housing, public equipment. So it was a great story in those three to four years. But then the question was, do we actually want to become part of the political party? And I said no. And at the same time, a famous businessman from uh, Castilla-La Mancha contacted me and said, uh, I think you have the right mindset. You have very good skill sets. Uh, and we have a very ambitious plan of taking a company public. And uh, we would like you to be part of the team. Uh, so he invited me and the timing was perfect. I didn't want to become, let's say, a manager with political connections. And I want to continue with my career as a, let's say, a, uh, in, in the business. No, So that, that invitation, that uh, uh, Familia Barco, no? they were connected to Dominga Dia de Mera. There was a very famous family office by the time. Then they went through very hard times. They were the owners of... Uh, Balomano Ciudad Real. They were also the owners of a famous aeroport or airport in the south of Spain. They were also famous for buying a very large uh, real estate public company. So by 2006, 2007, they were very, very popular around the financial center of Madrid. Uh, and I was taking care of uh, uh, many real estate assets across Europe, also in Spain. But then the Lehman Brothers crisis came in. So I was moving from dealing with uh, financial entities, trying to buy large pieces of land, trying to develop huge real estate projects in energy, real estate, etc., to trying to reorganize a very, let's say, chaotic situation where all the banks were very scared about uh, the level of leverage that they had with us. We weren't very sure of uh, what was actually going to happen with many of the projects that we had in hand. Grupo Lavaro, which was one of the main projects going to IPO, uh, was basically stopped. So that was 2008, 2009. So that was a tipping point in my life. And obviously, you know, this saying, as you were saying, this gave you the real exposure into the business, into the business side, you know, uh, as you were alluding to. But then also it was a nice segue into ending up, you know, getting your master's degree. Uh, from ESA. And essentially, this also was pivotal for you because in one of those trips that you did with your classmates, you ended up discovering Brazil, right? And uh, and you fell in love with Brazil. So what were the sequence of events that needed to happen from that point until you ended up finding yourself starting a business there in Latin America, which was the next one called Pidu? Mm -hmm. So uh, until 2009, when I started my MBA at YESE, the reality is that I had, I had done a lot of things in the business side, but I had never actually suffered uh, all the pain points of an entrepreneur, of actually raising the capital, raising the team, uh, going, uh, going through the uncertainties of funding, um, of selling your product, etc. No? Uh, in 2009, I started my MBA. It was an executive MBA, so most of my classmates were people working for corporates that uh, the companies were paying the, the tuition for them. In my case, I had to pay, I had to ask for a loan. So I was funding myself. No? Uh, so in December 2009, I flew to Rio Janeiro and to Floripa, and I saw a completely different atmosphere. In Spain, was going through a great financial crisis. In Brazil, there was the commodity hype. Uh, Spain, if you look at, let's say, the IBEX, trying to think of the main, the three, the 35 biggest public companies 
that structure of public companies in Spain has not changed a lot in the last 30 years. Uh, most of the, let's say, big executives in Spain are people over their 50s. No? Uh, if you look in Brazil, it's, uh, it's a population that is very young. They're very ambitious. Most of the people uh, in large corporates or investment banking or consulting, uh, retail, are people, younger people, educated, most of them abroad, mostly in the United States is the reference for them. So when I visited uh, Rio Janeiro and Floripa during those two weeks, I had the opportunity of meeting people that were working and living in Brazil from different uh, uh, nationalities. And they, they didn't want to pitch Brazil, but they were actually pitching it. You could see that they were really, really happy of living in Brazil and investing their best day, their best years of their uh, professional life in Brazil. Uh, in fact, one of them uh, was then, uh, I met him uh, just for five or 10 minutes, David Bellet, no? who then uh, launched uh, Nubank. He was also in Floripa. No? And some people that were launching Facebook also in Brazil were there and they were talking marvelous things about uh, Latin. So I came back to Spain. Uh, everything was still the same, depressing. People thinking about what to do, let's say, in a very, not very ambitious way. Um, so in 2011, at the end, 2010, at the end of uh, the master, I decided to just quit everything. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So with Bidu, actually, you ended up um, doing the Series A. You guys did a Series B. I guess for the people that are listening, what was the business model of Bidu? What were you guys doing there? Uh, and then also, what was the biggest lesson that you took away from your experience at Bidu? So, uh, Bidu, we founded in uh, 2012. Uh, it was a, a company that was uh, funded by Monashis, and we were four uh, founders. I was the CEO and the CSO. Basically, I was taking care of the whole business, and the CEO was taking care of uh, the funding and the relationship with the carriers, insurance carriers. Bidu was an insurance broker. 
By that time, the model was copying sort of money supermarket or Geico in the U.S., basically reselling insurance, uh, car insurance through internet. Uh, the context there it was it was a booming market in most of the non-emerging economies or developed economies because insurance is mandatory in the UK, is mandatory in the US. In emerging markets, it's not mandatory. But we didn't see that as a, an obstacle. We saw that as an opportunity. So we brought that model to Sao Paulo. We raised up to $12 million from uh, funds from Palo Alto, uh, even though they were not based in Latin. We had to do all the history about talking about where Brazil was, where LATAM was, why they had to invest in an emerging economy, why they had to invest on us. Uh, it was very hard times. In 2012, 2013, you can ask all the entrepreneurs in LATAM, they will tell you the same story. You had to look for the funds everywhere because they were not located in Brazil. Most of the things that you had to do in order to raise funds uh, was everything new for us, like building a structure in Cayman Islands, in Delaware. Uh, so Bidu was uh, an experiment for all of us since the beginning. Uh, learnings, basically, I think one of the learnings is from, a, 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 let's say, a product market fit point of view. I think we spent a lot of money in Bidu before we actually had the, the business model right. Insurance brokers depend a lot on renewal rates. And we started investing really, really hard in the first one or two years. And uh, there were many things that had to be built before that. Uh, in terms of team, we were also not ready. Culturally, the company was not ready. And uh, obviously, I had my concerns of that, uh, that I explained to, to my colleagues and co-founders. Uh, some of them agreed, some of them not. And I think when you have very clear that uh, culturally there is no fit, uh, you as a founder, because it's your life and also because it's your cost of opportunity, you also need to be very clear with you and with your co-founders and be very transparent. And that's something that I've always applied uh, in my companies, being very transparent with my colleagues about uh, where you want to take the company, what are the key milestones that uh, you believe you need to meet before you do any, you, you take any step further. Uh, a startup is a marathon, uh, and the more money you raise, the deeper you get into that marathon, the more resistant, the more grit you need to have. But to do that, you need to be very sure about the milestones that you need to achieve before asking for that money. Now, in your case, you ended up moving to Spain. Uh, and, uh, and, you, and you go to Spain, and now you are part of the founding team of OnTrack, you know, a company that has raised about 80 million bucks. You know, one of the darlings to, you know, the Spanish uh, VC ecosystem, you know, at one point. So I guess, what was that experience like now being, you know, in a different, you know, market, a little bit easier, you know, I guess because Brazil was still a little bit green. What was the difference, you know, now with OnTrack and, and what was that lesson that you took away, you know, with you from OnTrack? Hmm. Well, when I uh, landed on track, uh, invited by Inigo Juantegui, who was the founder of La Ronja, he just sold it to, uh, to the guys from Rocket Internet. So he was already quite a successful guy there, no? Uh, so I was coming from Brazil. All my background and network was from Brazil. I was, I was known here in Brazil, uh, but in, in Spain, nobody knew me. So basically, I was the person that Inigo uh, invited to lead all the C operations and sales because of my background uh, of uh, from zero to one, basically, putting all the business and the team together. 
and Inyo was the guy dealing with the with the investors, etc. No, and I think there is one one thing that struck me uh, the most between uh, Latin and uh, and Spain or 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 Europe. Even though Brazil was uh, very hard to fundraise, uh, the VCs that we were talking to were uh, US VCs. And uh, the mindset of US VCs is you need to bring me something very big, and I will look at your vision, I will hear your vision, and I will plan what I want to give you based on how ambitious you are, what type of team you have. It's more, let's say, qualitative, at least on the first steps from pre seed to Series A. In, in Europe, uh, we were lucky to have uh, very strong teams. It was Inigo, it was myself, it was also Samuel, uh, a very good tech guy, uh, and also Javier with a very good background. That helped us a lot. But without that, uh, it would have been very, very, very difficult to raise the the, the money that OnTrack raised because the European VCs, what I've seen, uh, the market, obviously they say this one single European market reality is not. Here in Brazil, I have 230 million people speak the same language, sort of regulation is the same thing. The problems are very similar in all of the states. In Europe, it's different. On track, I open Spain, then I open UK, then I open France, then I open Netherlands. Completely different markets. You need to play, build a playbook for each market. Talent is completely different. Regulation is different. Uh, what you need to care about uh, employees, uh, employment law, is completely different. Uh, how you scale the company is completely different. So I see that Europe is very competitive uh, because of the complexity, because there is also a lot of talented people that do not find a place in corporates and look for uh, their career path in startups, uh, which makes it also more competitive in terms of the number of companies that can come up and com- uh, find a competitive model against you very quickly. But on the other side, they have less access to capital the way it's here versus what you have here in Brazil. So that struck me a lot. But the reality in the case of Ontrack, I was lucky because since the beginning, um, I think we made a very robust team. And that's why the story of Ontrack was quite success- successful since the beginning, even though the first year was really, really tough. Uh, again, coming back to the product market fit, uh, that first phase of Ontrack was really, really challenging. Now, for you, it sounds like Brazil eh, was eh, always there no? in, in your mind, in your heart. And, and you end up eh, going back to Brazil. You go to Sao Paulo and you were now on the more on the investment side, you know, with eh, niche partners where you guys eh, acquired a bunch of companies and grew that to over 200 million in, in revenues and, and, and a ton of employees. They're connected to it. But it sounds like you have the founder in you. And as they say, once an entrepreneur always an entrepreneur. So at what point does the idea of Camino, which is your latest baby, at what point does the idea of Camino come knocking? And why did you think that it was meaningful enough for you to take action? So uh, when I decided to, to join uh, Pasco Oliveira, which is the founder of uh, Niche Partners, that is a private equity here in Brazil, similar to Constellation Software, uh, we founded Niche Partners under the, under the umbrella of Tarpon in 2020. The idea was to uh, build a private equity that was going to buy mid-sized companies here in Brazil and create a um, platform where we connect all the softwares of those mid-sized companies that the, what the commonality they have is all of them are focused on logistics. Uh, 
the reason why I accepted uh, that chance to be the founder of that private equity, one, the, the entrepreneur, Vasco, uh, I saw the ambition that I have. Uh, his track record was amazing, but also the project was of another size. I had been for the last eight years trying to build from scratch, and that is something really, really tiring. Mentally, I was exhausted. And on track was exhausting. No? I was traveling every three days of the week. I was in Paris, London, Amsterdam, Madrid. No, Even my wife told me that it, had, it seemed that I had another family around Europe. No? So I, had, I wanted to look for a project that was challenging, but at the same time more, more stable. Uh, and uh, during two years at Niche, uh, we built NSZ Tech. Basically, we raised uh, $50 million uh, in two months. Then we raised uh, maybe three times that in the next years. Uh, and we bought more than 20 companies. Those companies are highly profitable. They are leaders, niche market leaders. That's why the private equity is called niche partners. And during that time, what I realized during 40 diligence is that companies, businesses in emerging markets are highly profitable because they have very little access to capital. It's very expensive. But they have very poor financial management tools and very poor access to payment methods and to financial services. In fact, if you look at the report of QD, they tell you that the next 10 years in emerging markets is going to be about software and fintech. Huge market, embedded finance. So LATAM is going to be, together with uh, Asia, one of the two largest markets for software connected with embedded finance for mid-sized companies. Because the GDP in Spain or in the U.S. for mid-sized companies, maybe they are 99% of all the companies in, in the U.S., S&Ps, but they represent more than 50% of GDP. In Brazil, they represent less than 30%. Why? Because they do not have means. So when I was in niche partners looking at all those companies, I'm being myself just being an M&A guy, I said, I have to do something about this. I need to give these people, that is the backbone of the Latin economy, the means to actually grow better and faster. Because if we do it, you can actually transform the social and economic reality of Latin America. So I went to my friends. Uh, Benjamin is one of my co-founders here. He just sold Giabonso to PicPay. I was thinking about what to do. Gutu uh, was the CFO of Groupon. I met him when I was at Groupon. I was leaving Amazon. I told him, let's do something. And Pereña, who was uh, the, the CTO of Mercado Pago, we got together and said, there's a large opportunity, there's the capital, and there's nobody doing here in, in Brazil. There's no spend management platform here in, in Brazil. And we launched it in December 2021 with a very successful pre-seed round. So then let's talk about also the um, business model. You know, what are you guys doing and how are you guys uh, planning to monetize here? So uh, basically, what we are not a software company. We are not a bank. We are the addition of those two things. So uh, basically a company, a mid-sized company that wants to handle payables and receivables and wants to execute those payables and receivables in one single place can do it through Camino. And we charge them a SaaS fee and we also monetize through our bank account and our corporate card. But they don't need to use our bank account or our corporate card because we are integrated with other aid banks here in Brazil. So basically we are just one platform that integrates financial management with payment methods with financial services. 
And you guys have raised also one of the largest pre-seed rounds, you know, there. What do you th what do you think were the ingredients that needed to be in place for you guys to achieve that type of success on raising money at such an early stage? I think there's a large problem, very large, that a few people, very important funds were look already looking at it. Uh, we're four founders with very, very successful track record. Um, and we had the story right and the timing also, no? Uh, we raised in December 2021. It was still the hype, even though it was sort of ending. And uh, we actually were able to transmit uh, our very, very ambitious plan. So I think the funds thought, I don't know if these guys actually want to, are, also, are actually going to do what they say they're going to do, but they will succeed. Um, so uh, it was quite a nice story. But then, you know, uh, it's very easy uh, to say it this way, but then the tough the tough things come when you actually need to execute and deliver on those promises. Absolutely. Now, obviously, you know, with investment, you know, it it, it really goes into vision, right? And and vision is ultimately what uh, drives everything. You know, investors, customers, employees. I guess in, in in this regard, imagine Gonzalo, if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Camino is fully realized. What does that world look like? So we're, we're basically I see that small and mid-sized businesses represent way more than what they represent now here in Brazil. And there are way more opportunities for young people to work at Mercado Libres, no banks, creditas, etc. Because basically half of the companies here in Brazil die after four years because nobody gives a shit about them in terms of financial services in terms of integrating their financial uh, management tools. So I would just feel very proud if I go to, let's say, to the street or if I have a business meeting and uh, some of my clients tell me, I actually am successful and part of it is because of Camilo. That's beautiful. Now, we're talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past now with a lens of reflection. So let's say I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to maybe that point where you're like in your mid-20s, thinking about a world where you could start a company on your own and venture out into the unknown. And let's say you had the opportunity of stopping that younger Gonzalo on the way out from Clifford Chance and having a sit down with your younger self and being able to tell that younger Gonzalo one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be, given what you know now? Hmm. I think we have got to a point where we consider venture capital like uh, the only solution to, to funding a business. Obviously, I'm a, an entrepreneur in the venture capital ecosystem and I love it. But the reality is that you need to make be very sure about the decision of launching a company. Uh, the first thing I would do is make sure that you get reasonable advice from people that have actually done it before because the cost that is going i remember one of the interviews of the guy from nvidia no? and they asked him would you do it again it's like no way okay so one of the things they think nobody tells you what is launching what does launching a company mean for you and for your family so i think it's very romantic to do it but it's it's a hell of a job and then if you actually for ask for venture capital it's even more demanding Every time you ask for an additional million dollars, right, you get yourself deeper into that commitment. And you're actually uh, 
trustworthy and ethical founder, you see that commitment uh, from a very strict point of view. Uh, so I think I would ask, I would suggest myself to make less and more profound decisions. I love that. So Gonzalo, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to, to do so? So uh, I'm here in Sao Paulo, and I think the best way to reach me is through my uh, email, which is Gonzalo, G-O-N-Z-A-L-O, at Camino, with K, uh, dot com, uh, dot BR. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, Gonzalo, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.